Good afternoon and welcome to Delivering Informed Care based on a longitudinal view of patient data, a health system CIO media Inc. production sponsored by LK. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and be, I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can use the questions and comments box at any time, and we'll take those later in the program. Uh, we're going to have a nice one-question poll that we put out, and we'll have our panelists guess at the results before we reveal them. So that's always a lot of fun. Nice way to view the screen today. Click on the top center, get it into side-by-side -side mode. Then you can adjust divider, the divider to get the slides and the video boxes the size you like. And it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our panel discussion featuring Marianne Yeager, CEO of the Sequoia Project, Mike Grewe, Dr. Mike Grewe, CEO of OrthoLive, and GP Singh, VP of Interoperability Solutions with LK. So let's jump right into our discussion. Marianne, let's start with you. Can you give us an uh, overview of your organization and your role there? Well, sure, Anthony, and thanks for uh, inviting me to join today. Um, so the Sequoia Project is a nonprofit with a public good mission, and our focus is very singular. It's really to advance secure, interoperable, and nationwide exchange of health information. And we do that by bringing together public and private stakeholders to work on key issues or challenges that impede interoperable health information exchange. And our focus is not so much on academic or standards or things of that nature, but we try to focus and hone in on the real practical implementation level um, issues that, um, you know, really boots on the ground perspectives. So that's really what we're all about. Very good. Thank you, Mike. Yes. Yeah, so I'm the CEO and founder of OrthoLive. I'm also a practicing orthopedic surgeon. And um, OrthoLive uh, was really built to bring patients and providers together. Uh, it was a way to to do telemedicine sort of before telemedicine was cool. Um, so we started back in 2016 and our business really delivers a robust telemedicine and telecommunication platform to orthopedic groups. And to date, you know, we've served thousands of patients, um, thousands of surgeons and close to uh, 1 million patients. So um, that's kind of what we, what we do and uh, in a nutshell. Very good. GP? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm the VP of Interoperability Solutions at LK. Um, LK, as everybody knows, is uh, known as the healthcare data plumber. We've been dealing with healthcare data even before data was sexy in the healthcare space. Uh, we've been uh, in business for over 18 years, uh, worked across a gamut of, uh, across five segments of the healthcare uh, domain, meaning labs. We worked with uh, labs for a long time, and, and nine of the 10 labs in the country work with us right now, um, and uh, done a lot of work around the data archiving, data migration space. Um, which really is the basis of our growth in the interoperability space. So we work with the labs, hospitals, uh, with the ambulatory systems, with the uh, payers, and uh, with with the uh, the vendors uh, in the healthcare space. All right. Very good, Mike. We're going to start with you. How would you define the term longitudinal view when it comes to patient care? What does it include, and how is it different from the way care was delivered in the past? Yeah, it's a really good question, Anthony. Um, you know, and, and we're talking about a longitudinal view today. And so for me, longitudinal view as it relates to patient care 
revolves really around the concept that patients' health history, their procedures, their medications, allergies, all of that, the, the whole medical history should really be transportable amongst um, uh, healthcare providers and available to healthcare providers, really no matter where the patient is. And this idea, I think, helps providers sort of see the whole length of the patient's journey, not just kind of that snapshot that we get right now. Um, and so, you know, in the past, like, you know, care was sort of delivered as that snapshot. And so if someone would come into the orthopedic office, we'd sort of understand what was going on with them right now, but we never really got into depth and detail about what was happening with that patient before. So, um, you know, that's really what, to me, like that longitudinal view is seeing that whole uh, patient journey and being able to have access to it immediately, um, you know, with, with some of our, our data. So that, that to me, I think is, is what longitudinal view is. Mike, there is something to be said for the right amount of data, right? Because we've heard from lots of physicians, they don't want everything. You know, when you talk about wearables and things that are constantly generating data, they don't want a big dump. So it, you want a longitudinal view, but you want to see the right thing. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, as a surgeon, that is, um, you're hitting home with that, those comments, Anthony, really are, because, you know, I don't want information overload. I want to know what's important to me in that patient journey. So for me, it's really focusing on the things that we ask questions about, like the past medical history. I'd like to know what, you know, the patient's dealing with, but I don't need to know in detail, you know, what their blood pressure was on January 25th, 2015. So having that information um, in a more generalizable form of kind of their active problem list and what they've dealt with before, um, understanding what surgeries they had and exactly what was done. Those are critical pieces to me. So, you know, there is a fine line and, you know, in terms of the information we get, not that information overload, but, but really the, the finite piece of information that we truly need is critical. So you're, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head with that comment for sure. Very good. GP? Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, obviously we're dealing with the concept of longitudinal view even before, uh, you know, it became such a big deal, but because, uh, you know, data is fragmented, right, across all kinds of EMR systems, all kinds of labs, lab reports, imaging uh, data that's out there. And uh, what we've seen is the need uh, for us to be able to kind of help bring all of this data together in a clean uh, way uh, so that, you know, because obviously you mentioned about the fact that there's a lot of data, but there's a lot of bad data also, uh, and being able to, you know, really provide a clean view across the entire patient journey is what uh, is important. Bringing in all the active meds, allergies, problems list, but also the historical information from the labs, the imaging is actually very critical uh, in, in that sense. Um, we've recently seen a, a growth in terms of the number of organizations that have basically said, look, you know, we are a large healthcare system, but the hospital EMR is a different EMR, and then the, the ambulatory side is a different EMR, and the practice managers or, or the practice practitioners in the ambulatory space really don't get to see what's happening on the acute side. And if a patient lands up uh, in the, on the acute side, they don't, the, the, the practitioners over there don't necessarily get to see the, the data from the, uh, the, pri the primary care or, or the specialist. Uh, so our you know, focus has been around trying to generate a holistic view so that wherever the patient goes, uh, you know, the data kind of flows along and, and is visible at all times uh, to really help with uh, better care. 
And GP, you know, you talked about how even within a health system, uh, especially one that's grown through acquisition and whatnot, there can be uh, a lot of uh, isolated silos of data. And that gets people certainly frustrated, right? Because if you've got the same name on the physician practice in the hospital, the expectation is that there's interoperability as opposed to maybe if you're at two different organizations, you say, okay, I get it. So organizations that are, are are of one one unit they even they need to go even more out of their way to get this done because they're not meeting right. the expectations does that make sense yeah absolutely i mean uh, that's that's a major issue is uh, you know and mark Proves, our, our new cio who just came in from intermountain healthcare uh, talks about the fact that look you know he's he's been in hospital systems and dealt with a lot of these and it's interesting how they're not as connected as they need to be and that really creates a lot of frustration uh, within the the provider base, but also within the the patient, right? Uh, because the patient's always worried about whether their information is actually flowing the right way or not, and and do they have access to all of that holistic information or not? Uh, so yes, that 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 is a big pain point. Marianne, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, for all of that to be possible and to support longitudinal patient records, you really have to be able to access data across uh, multiple sources and typically, as GP was noting, disparate systems. And, you know, more importantly, the the data itself has to be semantically interoperable. And and so for all of that to really work and for the information really to be usable. And so from where we sit, you know, those are really the two key building blocks is how do you enable that more readily? And then how do you make the data usable? Even though we're more interconnected than we've ever been as a country, you know, know, one of the big issues is how do you make the data usable um, to, to clinicians in particular? Very good. Well, we'll talk more about that. We'll get into more detail. Uh, And let's start with that. GP, what are the challenges around presenting a longitudinal view and why is it so difficult? Well, traditionally, the EMRs uh, were not as open, uh, you know, uh, in in that sense. And and that seemed like quite a bit of a roadblock in terms of uh, being able to access data out of the EMRs. Uh, but then also what we're really seeing now is the fact that, yes, there is a lot more plumbing in place uh, uh, than before. Uh, but then the quality of data that's flowing across that plumbing is not necessarily uh, you know, at par because there's a lot of unstructured data that's sitting in there. There's a lot of uh, duplicate data that's sitting in there. There's a lot of data that uh, you know, organizations have to figure out a way to reconcile deduplify, have, um, you know, EMPIs in place to be able to, you know, really manage all of that and then ensure going forward, uh, you know, that 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 clean data continues along. Uh, one other big factor that we're seeing out there is the fact that there's a lot of unstructured data that's really not being handled as effectively. Um, it's, it's one thing to have discrete data, but then it's another thing to have a lot of unstructured data. And there's a lot of information in that unstructured data um, so, so that's a that's a major challenge that uh, I think is going to become acute at some point in time because as more analytical platforms come, analytics platforms come along, as more pop health programs become uh, available across, um, as people are trying to get into clinical decision support uh, systems and things like that, uh, you know that unstructured data is going to become extremely valuable and being able to you know really get that data and make that data available in a discretized format is going to be is going to be really important so, so that is a, a major challenge a couple of things there so 
one issue, which is its own issue, could be sort of bad data from the beginning, meaning data is right. being put in incorrectly or a variety of formats or something within an organization. And that could be a data governance issue, right? That They got to right. fix that just to get the data right. That's separate right. from the issue of a data in Epic versus data in Cerner. And they can't, right? Two separate issues, correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, one issue is the fact that, okay, having a free flow of data between systems and being able to reconcile that. Uh, the other issue is obviously the fact that, you know, uh, what is the quality of data? Uh, and, and then how do you actually reconcile across the quality of data? Um, so so I think both of these are challenges when it comes to interoperability. Um, you know, my wife is a primary care physician and, and uh, when she sees patients, she'll see you know, handwritten notes in the chart uh, that have been scanned uh, and or, you know, some sort of uh, uh, Mike is uh, smiling over there. I'm sure, Mike, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Absolutely. Because she, that's her frustration. That's her frustration out there trying to, you know, figure out how, how, does, how can she get a holistic view of a patient when some of this data isn't necessarily in the right format. But obviously the first step is establishing the plumbing the mm-hmm. next step is to go ahead and then work on on the data quality and and really being able to extract uh, good data out of uh, these you know uh, unstructured data elements. Wow, that's a lot going on there, Marianne. Your thoughts? Really, just echoing what GP said, and in from where we sit in particular, you know, that's really where our focus has been is you know really how to um, enable you know systems to interconnect and enable the exchange of information which is very much akin to plumbing. And then really the focus right now for us and what we think we need to do to double down on that is to focus on you know, the semantics of uh, the data being exchanged so that it can be um, you know, usable. And then also, of course, data quality being a separate but important issue. I think there's gonna be a lot of agreement among this uh, group here, but those are really the two core challenges and the two core needs to, to make this uh, viable. Very good, Mike. Yeah, I, I, I would also um, echo what GP said. I, I think, you know, as you look at the way, you know, finally, or at least getting this data to be electronic, right? So first of all, it was all written notes. And you look at the evolution of how this really has occurred is you had um, notes that were uh, written. Those notes then sort of became part of the EHR, you know, as, as we scanned them in and things like that. So you had this massive amount of unstructured data um, now we're actually creating discrete data. And what that means by discrete data is just, you know, data that says, you know, this patient has hypertension and that discrete data then lives in the chart and can be passed on. But, you know, when you just scan a record, there's no information there. There's no actual full, you know, data. You don't learn anything uh, or achieve anything by that and you can't pass it on. Um, and now we're, we're also dealing with the fact that there's multiple EHR systems out there. So because of that, now we have unstructured data, we have multiple EHR systems, and we have, I think, a a challenge, you know, in moving all this data to discrete data and then moving forward. So it's this constant, I think, evolution that's happening. I think it will happen, but it's it's obviously, um, you know, we're having to undo a lot of the the uh, past uh, to try to get forward in the future. And and it's happening. It's just uh, it's you know moving slowly. Very good. All right, next question. We'll start with you, Marianne. What are the, ma- the major advances that have been made on the interoperability front in the last 12 months or so? It doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, what achievements do you anticipate being made in the near future? 
Well, um, I would say there's been really significant progress, particularly in the private sector, in uh, growth of health information network connectivity. So more and more providers are connected to, um, uh, more and more providers across the continuum of care, for instance, are connected to health information networks, which is important. I mean, the first thing, you know, to make interoperability a reality is providers actually have to be connected to networks and have the ability to share information with others. And so we've seen that now that there's been really a really a monument um, growth in the exchange of information between and among health information networks. This was evidenced by Care Equality, which you know, really provides a framework and a standardized way for health information networks to interconnect by, they basically agree to share information according to a particular set of standards and implementation guides, and they all agree to exchange under a set of policies and terms. And um, so just to, you know, share some real world numbers, you know, they're, they've had more than a billion with a B clinical documents shared over the past several years with the lion's share of that occurring over the past 12 months. And so we're just seeing exponential growth in, in that area. I think, you know, the interesting thing is what achievements do we anticipate in the near future? I think we're going to just continue seeing unprecedented volumes and growth and information being shared and increased reliance on providers. But I think with that are going to come some increased frustration that if the data being exchanged is not usable or valuable to clinicians, then that just escalates the pain points that already exist. And for us, that's a call to action um, in terms of what we need to do to improve. And, and that's really, again, focusing in on the data. Very good. Mike? Yeah, I mean, I think the... Um you know, the, the main thing for us to, to focus on, um, you know, is, is the fact that telemedicine and sort of the, the COVID outbreak has really changed the way that, um, you know, private companies uh, view the healthcare landscape. And so they're feeling like, you know, now is the time for technology. And, and I think they're pushing harder than ever to um, comply with interoperability uh, and comply with interoperability rules and, and, do the things that are necessary to make sure that we achieve um, this interoperable landscape. And, you know, it started pre-COVID with, you know, HL7 Fire, which is kind of a nice shareable um, information source. And I think it's just going to continue to build and we're going to see even better interoperability in the future. And so I think just like everything else tech related, you know, there was a huge push that happened uh, through um, the COVID crisis. And I think it'll, it'll um, be there in the future as well. Very good, GP. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the things that's happened in the last twelve months. I mean, Fire has been around for a long duration of time, right? And everybody was hoping for Fire to get on fire, uh, uh, but that wasn't necessarily happening. And I think in the last twelve months, uh, there's been a significant, uh, you know, difference in that sense. We see a lot of organizations talking to us, uh, wanting to, you know, uh, work with Fire and want to enable features out of fire to to really become more interoperable uh, so that's one thing that that's definitely out there um, that that that's really helping that people are catching on to a single standard uh, of uh, of exchanging data we're still a long ways away from from getting to where the ideal state would be but there's definite push in that sense uh, I think uh, the other thing that's happened in the last uh, 12 months especially with the last six months which have been really interesting right? Um, people have recognized the fact that, uh, you know, interoperability is no longer optional. It's actually, you know, right here, right now we need, and everybody needs to be able to be interoperable if they're, if they're going to be able to function. 
Uh, and, and that's been a, a big difference in, in the last uh, six months. Uh, we, we're actually seeing organizations that are coming to us and talking to us about uh, figuring out a way to, uh, to, to become interoperable, to be able to you know, have uh, multiple systems be able to talk to each other. And I think they're now making a commitment that we didn't see at this level uh, before. Telemedicine, as Mike pointed out, is, is an interesting area. Uh, everybody is so excited about telemedicine, but then um, we're seeing pain points around the fact that telemedicine is introducing another area of interoperability issues uh, because a lot of data is sitting in telemedicine platforms that not necessarily making it back uh, properly into EMRs uh, because of the rush to go ahead and, and get uh, telemedicine platforms up and running. Uh, so that's another area that I think is going to improve in the next uh, in the near future where uh, telemedicine platforms will need to figure out a way to be more interoperable where they're getting a lot more data into the platform, but then also being able to send data back into uh, the the source of truth, which is still the EMR. Uh, GP, you mentioned that um, this could be because of the rush to get the telemedicine platforms in. Um, how could it have been done better so there would be more interoperability if there had been more time? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, right? Uh, intro, I mean, telemedicine platforms have been there for a while. It's not something that just recently came about. Uh, and Mike will tell you, uh, you know, he's, he's been in that space for a little while, uh, just as a lot of other organizations. Um, but the uh, the adoption wasn't there from a patient perspective, and and that's that's the area that ha- that got forced, uh, you know. And during the COVID times, uh, there was there was some sort of a mental block uh, around using telemedicine platforms face to face with it. Just was the traditional uh, mechanism, and and patients and providers felt uh, better uh, doing that. But I think the last six months have kind of shown the fact that you know telemedicine visits are equally important and you know equally uh, play play a really good role in helping. Uh, the patient provider uh, relationship and and uh, being able to have access to care. So the last six months, there was no way you could have avoided the rush. The, you needed some sort of a, a push, and this was unfortunately the push in in this situation. Uh, but I think we're we're now at a point where you know both sides, the provider and the patients, are feeling more comfortable. Uh, my wife's using uh, telemedicine, and I see her working harder. Uh, because her her nurses, her appointment staff, her uh, you know billers um, are working extra trying to reconcile information across uh, you know these uh, the telemedicine platform and uh, and and the EMR. All right, very good, uh, Mike. Uh, to you, uh, what can you tell us about your interoperability journey at Ortho Live, and what were some of the main challenges and how were they approached? It's a good question, Anthony. We, um, you know, as, as a surgeon sort of designing the platform, I knew that interoperability was important. So um, anything that kind of comes off of our platform is HL7 Fire. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that all the other systems and all the other um, programs that we work with and the EHRs that we work with work off of HL7 Fire. So we, we have actually, you know, worked to try to, um, you know, make sure that the, that information can be spread across uh, the institutions as, as well. But, you know, there are two main issues. The first is scheduling. So, um, you know, just th- that first challenge is when you come into our platform and you schedule an appointment, how is that information going to get over to the practice management system? 
And so that's where we sort of turned to LK to sort of help us to understand that and to make sure that that came across. Because what's happening is because we've had to schedule so many telemedicine appointments um, in the COVID time and, and even after, you know, healthcare practices are actually employing a full-time person to do telemedicine scheduling. And that is a gigantic waste of time when that information should just automatically sort of populate in the PM system. So OrthoLive kind of um, decided way ahead of time that this was a very important thing that we needed to do to save, you know, healthcare practices time and money uh, by making sure that information flowed across. And then there's other things like past medical history, allergies, medications, changes to patient's health status that also needs to feed across to the EHR. And it's all things that telemedicine companies collect, but currently do not send across. And again, that was something that we have um, worked on uh, with our partners at LK to make sure that 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 is happening. And we've been very, very happy with that. So, um, you know, those were the main challenges, I think, is making sure scheduling and the information that we collect gets across uh, in a seamless way. Otherwise, people are wasting time doing things twice and having to re-enter information. So, Mike, you're a, a surgeon, right? You're a CEO. You seem like a pretty smart guy. Um, did you consider trying to do this stuff yourself in-house, bring on a CIO? You seem like you know a lot. What is this just beyond the ability of, uh, you know, I don't know, individuals to do, so to speak, and you need a company like LK? Is it just too complicated? Yeah. I mean, honestly, if you want to work with everybody – you need to work with the experts that do interoperability, right? I mean, that is the bottom line. You can't, um, as a single institution with a single person, you can't reach all of the different information sources. So like, you know, you can work off of HL7, you could work off of HL7 Fire, you could have, you know, specific, you know, sources of information that comes across. And to already have those relationships built, to already know that like, you know, LK already works with Epic and Cerner and, all the different, you know, um, EHR, major EHRs and, and the small ones too. Um, we knew we needed kind of the experts to handle that. And our, our team, um, you know, was not going to be able to, and nor, nor do we want to spend our resources trying to hunt down those things. So, you know, for people that need interoperability, um, you know, you turn to an expert to make sure that it happens properly. And that's, that's what we did. Very good. All right. Next question. We're going to start with you, GP. How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected the march towards interoperability? Was it a speed bump or did it speed things up? It sounds like from what you were saying before, you think it sped things up. Uh, is that correct? Or at least it sped up the need for interoperability and the understanding for that need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has really, you know, helped organizations to actually not necessarily help, but really see the fact that those gaps in care, uh, being able to send data uh, around test results, for example, uh, lab results is, is a major pain point that that's not being addressed. Uh, uh, so a lot of organizations seem to be, you know, now understanding uh, or at least making a commitment, uh, you know, to, to really uh, making interoperability happen. Um, one of the things I do want to point out, uh, Care Equality and Commonwealth, these two platforms have played a major role uh, in, in, in while, while, you know, all of these organizations are trying to bring data across, uh, you know, the various uh, clinical entities, uh, you know, across the healthcare system. Um, and and that's that's been extremely helpful. Um, we work with both of them and, uh, you know, that's uh, a lot more 
healthcare systems are relying on data out of uh, care equality and commonwealth, uh, which is which is a really important step. Uh, but then also the fact that there's still a lot of data that's not necessarily connected into care equality and commonwealth, and and they're trying to figure out a way to um, you know handle that information. Uh, we I remember getting a call from a hospital basically saying, hey, you know, guys, help us because we've got all of this data and all of these state agencies and these uh, public reporting agencies need a lot of that data and we're not able to give it to them uh, right now. We need some mechanism to go ahead and, and uh, you know, bring all of this data together and then provide an API or some other mechanism to be able to provide that data to uh, whoever needs to consume that data. Uh, so we, we're seeing those situations uh, on a regular basis now. So uh, it's, it's definitely moved things faster uh, or better in a, in a better way uh, from an interoperability perspective. Very good, Marianne. Well, we definitely saw COVID. Um, it has been serving as an accelerant. Um, there is sort of a shared uh, call to action to really do everything that's uh, humanly possible to make information available, um, particularly to public health. And you really, you know, in the midst of an emer any emergency or and in particularly a pandemic, trying to build something new is just not necessarily practical. It's definitely not expedient. So we saw that there, you know, really was a need to leverage existing infrastructure. And so we saw, you know, in a very short period of time, folks that were sort of on the sidelines or, you know, sort of had that connecting to care equality or connecting to a health information network was on their radar, that they sort of, you know, all of a sudden there was this impetus to really move more quickly. And you know, anytime that happens, we also uncovered some challenges from a policy perspective, which is where Sequoia is focused in, in that their providers in some instances are very reluctant to share information with public health uh, for pandemic response because they're worried they might be sharing too much information. Uh, CCDs, for instance, have a, a plethora of data, a ton of data, and there were concerns that they would be violating HIPAA minimum necessary. So we've been actually working with HHS and the Office of Civil Rights issue guidance on this because it's not necessarily technical impediments uh, to making that possible, but sometimes it's the policy, so. Excellent point. Mike? Yeah, I think what we saw um, from a telemedicine perspective is that um, we were able to offer a significant advantage over other telemedicine platforms that did not have interoperability. So we saw people coming to the platform looking for that. And so I, I've seen, you know, the COVID pandemic really increase um, people's idea that, that, you know, it's important to share data. It's important to make sure that, you know, we're not, um, as healthcare practitioners, wasting time um, trying to get information from one source to another, that it just flows automatically. So I think telemedicine, to me, has really highlighted how important it is to have shared data and have interoperability. And COVID was really the impetus for telemedicine to be adopted in the U.S., as GPs mentioned earlier. And so now I feel like we are seeing more of that desire for interoperability, at least in, in our um, area of, of uh, expertise. Very good. Marianne, anything else you want to tell us about what the Sequoia Project is working on? Well, our work falls into two categories. It's what we do through our Interoperability Matters program. So we've been focusing on information blocking compliance and emergency preparedness. And we have a new group, a work group that's focused on that we're preparing to launch that'll 
focus on semantic interoperability as it relates to data content. And then our work on the government side is our work with the ONC supporting their trusted exchange framework or common agreement or TEFCA. And, and that's really a government endorsed approach for information sharing that's really exciting, has true potential. So we have our hands full, we're very busy, um, you know, again, keeping our boots on the ground focused. And then of course, looking ahead to government sponsored activities. Very good. All right, GP, let's start with you here. Uh, what's your advice for organizations looking to improve their ability to move data from one vendor's application to a different vendor's application? Of course, there's the call LK joke we can make, but, uh, what, <laughs> yeah, but... What, what can you tell them to do? What's, what's sort of the, the basic first steps? You know, um, the most important step for an organization is really upper level, upper management buy-in and a vision uh, for the organization uh, and not really taking a piecemeal approach, but having a holistic view of how the, the organization is going to handle uh, interoperability, uh, not just for certain segments of the care, but across the entire, uh, you know, healthcare system. So. So really, you know, the the advice for an organization is is really making sure that the upper management buy-in, focus, vision is in place uh, to be able to do that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, working with uh, subject matter experts that understand uh, how to go about this and and helping implement that vision um, is is really important from that perspective. Um, a lot of the the EMR systems uh, are you know moving data from one vendor to another vendor. Uh, requires, uh, you know, it's it's supposed to work to a standard, uh, but that we're still long ways away from that. Uh, there are certain capabilities and certain things that aren't necessarily available, uh, you know, from that perspective. So be aware of that and and make sure, uh, you know, to plan for for things uh, from that perspective. But most importantly, have a vision, a commitment uh, to make this happen. Very good, Mike. Yeah, I think, um, you know, making sure that you have an internal champion is really key. Um, having somebody that actually right, right. does, um, you know, decide like this is their their main job, this is their main focus, and they want to take the data from one application to the next. Uh, it's very important because if you don't have a champion internally, it is hard to make change happen, especially inside of healthcare. And that goes for telemedicine to, um, you know, mobilizing uh, data from one system to the next. So, that's probably my primary recommendation is that, you know, there be a champion, they follow a process and, and work on things that way. That's, that's probably the, um, the best advice I can give. All right. Very good. We're going to put out our, our audience poll now. So go ahead and answer that. And our panelists can as well. I think I know how they're going to answer it. I, I think I know how this survey is going to go. I try and think of things where there'll be an interesting balance, but maybe I messed up here. The COVID, the COVID pandemic will prove to have been a catalyst that propelled interoperability forward. Uh, so uh, go ahead and answer that, and we will – oh, this is getting interesting. We'll, uh, we'll take a look at the results. So uh, if everybody can answer that, I would very much appreciate it. So while we are looking at that, we are going to go to our Ask a Co-Panelist segment. GP, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Yeah, actually, uh, Marianne, uh, have a question for you in terms of, uh, you know, where, where do you see interoperability, uh, you know, specifically with carry quality and Sequoia being taking such an important role? Uh, you know, how, how do you see data being shared or, or what challenges do you see in that space uh, around sharing data? Well, I think that there's going to be continued momentum in sharing information, um, 
you know, across health information networks through private sector approaches like carry quality and, and a potentially, you know, uh, with, with TEFCA being a government endorsed approach. I think that right. it's going to, what we're seeing is it'll definitely be an expansion of expanding this framework to also support fire-based exchange and other use cases beyond basic treatment. And um, again, having that common underpinning instead of having a specialty network or a specialty framework just for treatment, that we'll see that multi-purpose utility used for many purposes, hopefully public health more expansively. And then of, of course, expanding it to support other approaches like fire-based exchange. We really think that's where it's going. And again, having that core infrastructure built from. Yeah, so just a follow-on question on that, Mary, I'm just trying to understand, um, you know, with, with the interoperability guidelines from CMS and, uh, you know, payer APIs and, uh, you know, patient access APIs and things like that, uh, do you see you guys, play, I mean, I, is Sequoia and Carry Quality going to play a role in, in, in making that happen or, you know, at least some sort of a vision around that? Um, I think carry quality will certainly look at that operationally speaking, and they're already working um, and have adopted, um, you know, a, a new use case around fire based exchange. They are working now on a white paper to explore how that intersects with and what the opportunities are to support the interoperability requirements under the CMS interoperability rules. And of course, you know, the, the pair API approaches. So I think carry quality has a clear roadmap in that space and sort of, you know, being the intersection with that from where we stand at Sequoia, you know, broadly speaking, you know, we're, we really are looking at things in terms of um, you know, sort of national level roadmap, a coordinated implementation plan, particularly when it, it as it pertains to um, really the, the semantic interoperability and how you get the requirements fine tuned and the vendors, you know, sort of in lockstep on, uh, you know, a roadmap that can iterate over time and to really, you know, again, improve the semantics of the data being exchanged. Thank you. All right, we're ready to look at our polls. So let's get our panelists to guess at, at the results. Uh, what percentage do you think agree with this, Mike? <laughs> well, uh, the people that are on this, I would imagine probably at least 97%. I'm, that's, I'm, that's my number. I'm going 97. 97, GP. I'm going with uh, 92. 92, Mary. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm a little more, more circumspect. I'm going to say 80%. 80%. All right. And the answer is 89%. 89. So that is a... GP is the winner. He is. Yeah. GP, you get, you'll be sent a prize in the mail. Okay. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be very exciting. All right. Um, we have a couple of audience questions I want to uh, put in front of you. Um, let me start with you on this, GP. How do you convince clients of the value of data governance? That's, a, that's an interesting uh, question. You know, one of one of the things is, you know, we've got a lot of experience, right, uh, doing this across uh, so many organizations out there. And uh, what we've seen around uh, the, the, the way to kind of uh, talk about this is is being able to you know bring those experiences to to these clients uh, or these prospects that that are talking to us uh, where we where we talk through all of that and make sure that they are aware of the uh, the importance of data governance the importance of uh, really uh, you know uh, making that uh, a priority 
in, in that sense. And, uh, you know, there are use cases that we've seen, there are success stories that we've seen. So we bring that out, out there to be able to use that to, uh, to convince uh, folks. We've got an advisory panel uh, at LK that's, uh, you know, the who's who of uh, the healthcare systems and uh, who talk regularly on these subjects. Uh, so it's, it's something uh, that, that people trust us and value our opinion in that sense. Mike, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you ever have to be in a position to convince people of the value of creating good data? Well, I am also a researcher. And so, um, you know, from my perspective, good data is probably the key. I mean, it is really what um, research, you know, lives and dies on. And, you know, essentially we have a, we have a saying in research that's sort of like crap in equals crap out. And that revolves around the data. So if the data is no good, um, then you don't get the, the right thing in the end. And so it is, um, you know, I could give, I could give a 30 minute, you know, talk on how important, uh, good data is on the front end, you know, right, right now. And so to me, um, yeah, I, I spend a, a lot of time convincing researchers, convincing institutions um, that, you know, the data that they receive uh, and then when they churn that data and they put it through their algorithms to figure out maybe, you know, what risk a patient is uh, for having a total knee replacement to come back to the hospital. If they don't have good data coming in uh, to understand what their past medical history is or whatever, we don't get the answer coming out. So it is very, very important. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it, yeah, so I do spend some time talking about that. Very yeah, one, good. Of, one of the other things that oh, we, ahead, one of the other things I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to add on that is uh, data governance, better data governance is equal to, equal to better revenue, uh, you know, uh, and which really means that, you know, um, uh, better data is going to help uh, with better care. It's going to help with, uh, you know, decreased costs uh, along the way and then improved, uh, uh, you know, capabilities and, and revenue across your pop health programs and uh, analytics platforms and things like that. So, so uh, data is, the quality of data is absolutely important. Very good. All right, Marianne, do you happen to have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Well, you know, given um, that GP's focus is really um, <clears throat> very knee-deep steeped in, in interconnecting systems and, you know, you probably live and breathe firsthand all the challenges around that, um, you know, what do you think could be done to improve interoperability, at least to make it easier, your job easier? Yeah, um... Well, the more challenging the job, the better we get paid, right? So, um, <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> um, but but I think I think like like I said before, right? I mean, uh, data quality is important, but really a commitment at the uh, at the CIO level, a commitment uh, at the management level to really making this happen, um, the seeing the value downstream, uh, improving the patient experience. Uh, improving the provider experience, you know, these are all uh, key important areas, right? In that sense, um, you know, honestly, I feel sad for the providers right now. Um, I feel sad for the patients right now because providers are overwhelmed with a lot of information, a lot of data. They, they see patients for about six or seven hours a day, but then spend about two to three hours, uh, you know, charting. Uh, that, that's a major point, pain point for them. So, uh, you know, if, if there's a way to kind of manage that, uh, you know, and so that they are not scrambling for data or trying to understand what, what happened with the cardiologist, a primary care physician isn't working on that, that that's going to help their lives. Uh, so that, you know, so I, I feel like 
you know, there's got to be a commitment around changing the old order and really trying to move towards an order of, of uh, organized, uh, you know, data governance, but also, you know, systems that help the providers really do a better job uh, and improving efficiencies. Uh, on the other end is also the fact that there's frustration on the patient side because they don't necessarily feel like they're at the center of care uh, and, and making data available. And, and that's what this, uh, uh, you know, initiative from uh, CMS is around, you know, having patient as the, at the center of the care, making sure that the patient has access to their own data, which has been a, a tough thing to do. And now having to work with those mandates is going to mean that, uh, you know, a lot of these organizations are going to pay attention to that, which will really help them downstream, uh, you know, significantly. Very good, Mike. So that'll make our life a lot easier. Very good, very good. Mike, do you have a question for your co-panelists? Yeah, I mean, Marianne's sort of the person who has kind of this overarching understanding maybe of where interoperability um, is in the terms of the healthcare landscape. I'm curious, Marianne, how long do you think before we actually can do this for our patients that we have this, you know, um, interoperability figured out? I mean, you know, what is, what's the time frame going to look like? And Obviously, it's it's a moving target and it's certainly a, a slow evolution. But I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of solving this issue and and how long that's going to take. Oh boy, I think it's going to be a lifetime evolution. But I think we're going to see substantive progress in probably about five years. I know Congress and policymakers want progress immediately, and you know naturally that was the impetus for you know, what 21st century cures and the subsequent rules that were, you know, published by CMS and ONC, um, you know, making it illegal now to not share information unless you have a valid reason not to. But I think practically speaking to work through um, and mature all this, I think it's going to be a good five years. But I think by then we'll see some real progress day to day for us as individuals. That's a, my litmus test is when I go to the doctor, I take my kids to the doctor. I'd like to see this in a real practice and snippets, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you think that um, that time frame, are there going to be, you know, CMS uh, is, is going to be sort of rewarding people for having interoperability and mm-hmm. penalizing people for not having interoperability? Right. Yeah. Exactly. I think it's you know, the it's nudging and the carrots and lever, you know, and the carrots and sticks are going to be unfortunately part of the equation. Um, you wish it wasn't necessary, but it's going to take all of these factors. And plus the, the motivation, I think COVID is a great example of there's a real desire and passion to make all this work. And sometimes having a shared goal, um, you know, is, is enough to push it, push it to that next level. Yeah. All right. Very good. Um, we're almost out of time, but I want to give GP uh, a final chance to, to give a last word to the audience. Some uh, thoughts and advice. Uh, I think Mike got scared when Marianne said five years. He, he didn't look happy about that. Um, but, uh, you know, we also have uh, Mike talking about HL7, which is great to hear a CEO talking about HL7. Um, so, GP, your final thoughts and, and words of wisdom for the audience today. Yeah, no. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, COVID-19 has really been a good example of, uh, you know, what happens when uh, when people get together and they're motivated to, to take care of uh, things uh, for the greater good. Uh, you know, I strongly believe in the fact that, you know, healthcare uh, 
professionals are all motivated to for the greater you know care and and providing better care and and uh, you know taking care of their patients providing uh, improved efficiencies out there uh, i think it's time for uh, the organizations around these providers and patients really to you know uh, take it to the next level uh, the status obviously the status quo is not going to you know work uh, it's it's important for everybody to treat this as an important priority for 2021 for sure um, so that the you know god forbid the next time something uh, like this happens uh, you know the healthcare organizations uh, will be in a better place uh, to be able to handle that won't have to scramble the way they you know unfortunately had to uh, so I, i think you know there is enough reason to get the job done there's enough reason to be able to focus on on a longitudinal patient record single patient single record kind of a concept that that's really important and uh, i don't think i would definitely you know advise uh, professionals out there to not lose momentum uh, when when this goes away uh, to keep that momentum moving forward and and hopefully achieve that uh, that larger greater goal Well, very good. You get to see it firsthand, right? With your wife, you get to see the yeah. effects of either good interoperability or not good interoperability. So, <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. of what Especially you speak. Especially when she's working from home. That's yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Make your own dinner, right? Because she's working. Yep. We know how that goes. <laughs> very good. Um, all right. Well, that was wonderful. Regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can contact Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to very much thank our panel. It was a delightful conversation. Marianne Yeager, Mike Greewe, GP Singh. And I want to thank our sponsor, LK, for making this discussion possible, and thank you for attending. And with that, everybody, have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.